Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, if you'll take it and turn to the book of Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 17. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent to earth. Father, I thank you that he was the messenger of the new covenant. And Father, I thank you that we can understand more about you and your will for our lives through the words he spoke. And Father, I pray that as we read the very words of Jesus this morning, Lord, I pray that they would cut us to the heart. I pray that we would be changed to be forever more like your son. And Father, I pray that we would be holy, blameless, and upright. Father, help us not to be self-righteous, but help us to take an honest look at ourselves uh, so that we can become better followers of you. And Father, I pray now that you would feed your people, and I pray that you would use me to do it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have come to Matthew chapter 5. We're uh, round about the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount could be broken up into three different sections uh, if you were to outline it. And this is the second section. We finished the Beatitudes last week. And now Jesus is getting ready to launch into something slightly different. He's given you a lot of principles, but now he's going to give you some precepts for kingdom living. And so, if you remember coming out of the book of Malachi, we were told that that God is on his way before he comes, Elijah the prophet is going to come first. And we've learned in Matthew that Elijah has come, it was John the Baptist, and we've learned that Jesus is born the king of the Jews, that he has withstood temptation, and so he's not only king, but he's worthy and he's living up to that kingship that he occupies. And so I want to jump right in to the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to see how far that we can make it today. But we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus, after he finishes the Beatitudes, says this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And so Jesus tells the people, he's just finished saying, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness sake. And so he's been saying all of these things about people who are blessed. He's been given characteristics of people who live blessed lives. And it may have sounded so bizarre to the people that he jumps in here and he says, listen, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and don't think that I've come to abolish the prophets, but I came to fulfill it. If you get over to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews will tell you that the law was simply a shadow of the things that were to come. And so the law are, the law is cast a giant shadow and then Jesus comes on the scene and he fulfills everything that the law and the prophets talked about. And so Jesus isn't giving you something new or something different, but Jesus is getting to the heart of what was going on when the law and the prophets were given. If you can remember all the way back, and I know I'm asking you a lot, if you can remember all the way back to when we covered Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and man was put in the garden, and man was put in the garden, and he was given three rules. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What else? I was asking too much. Let me keep going. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Keep and cultivate the ground. And I also told you that that meant to worship and obey. Remember that? Well, that command of worship and obey is given. And then you get over to Genesis chapter 4. After man sins and he falls, 
the story of Cain and Abel. And remember, we took a whole sermon and we talked about the story of Cain and Abel and how the point that God wants to get across to you with the story of Cain and Abel is that worship without obedience is worthless. And obedience without worship is worthless. And so we're jumping into here in the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to find that you have to have worship and obedience for it to be acceptable to God. And so that's what's at the heart of the law. The heart, the, the law was never meant to be a list of do's and don'ts that if you keep them, you're in good shape. But you had to keep the law with the right heart. And Jesus is going to get back to the heart of this. And then he says, verse 19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he goes on to say in verse 19 that whoever takes away, whoever annuls, makes it as if it never happened, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do shall be called least in the kingdom. And so this is where we should do a little bit of self-reflection. And have you ever told anybody as a Christian, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Well, here it says that if you have ever done that, if you've ever annulled one of the commandments of God, then you are going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, a little bit of encouragement for you out of the book of John. John, excuse me, when John the Baptist comes around, Jesus says, whoever, he says that John the Baptist is the greatest human being to ever live. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And so does this teach that you can skip some of the things that Jesus teaches and be least in the heaven and be good to go? Is it possible to come to Christ, teach people to live in a way that's maybe not always following Christ, and then have your ticket punched, so to say, and be good to go? Is it possible to live halfway for Christ, only listening to some of his commands and be okay? And then you're still greater than John the Baptist? Maybe? Maybe not? Maybe you guys are dead this morning. The answer is no, you don't get to do that. As men, sometimes we sit around and we watch professional football and we talk about the salaries that these football players make. And a starting football player and a, a barely drafted football player, day one rookie, starts out at the league minimum, which is $420,000. And so oftentimes I have heard men say things like, I would gladly sit the bench for the Cleveland Browns and make $420,000 a year. If you don't know, I just named the worst team in football. And so sometimes we think, well, I would, I would gladly just ride the pine and sit there and make $420,000. But listen to this. No real man, no real football player would ever sign up just to sit the bench and make the league minimum. No child of God would ever be content just being called least in the kingdom of heaven. When God is choosing teams in heaven, if you're a Christian, you need to strive to be picked first, if you know where I'm going with this analogy. Nobody wants to be picked last when the neighborhood gets together and plays football or baseball or any other sport. And so don't think that you should ever be content by seeing that somebody who does something wrong is called least in the heaven. Any child of God, anybody who's pursuing the kingdom of God is never going to be content being called least. But we always strive 
to be pleasing to the Father, and we should always want to be first on the team. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a concert somewhere, and you've gotten a cheap seat, and you've sat in the back, and you can barely see, and sometimes there's a column in the way, and you really can't see anything, and so then you just find yourself looking at a screen, and you could have watched your TV with a good sound system and saved all that money instead of going to the concert. You ever been there? Some of you? You guys were not always the way that you are now. And so don't sit there and act like you have no idea what I'm talking about. Do Give me that much. All right. And so sometimes I've been places and I've thought, man, when I get to heaven, I don't want to sit this far in the back. I don't want to be least. I don't want to barely get in before the service starts and then have that bad of a seat. I want to be front and center of wherever we're going. And so anyways, he keeps going. And then he's going to, he's going to talk about several different things and we're going to cover them quickly. He talks about murder. You have heard, this is verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And so he says that you've been told don't murder, and that's correct. But let me tell you that if your heart is in such a place where it is going closer and closer and closer towards murder, and you're getting angrier and angrier and angrier towards people, then you are in a bad place and in danger of hell. It's not just enough not to murder someone, but if you have built up anger in your heart and you can't get rid of it, then you may not be in a place where you have been saved and Christ has taken all of those things from you. I'm going to read a couple verses from you. Don't turn there. You stay in Matthew. This is 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. This is at the end of David's life, and David is passing on some knowledge to Solomon. And he says this, As for you, my son Solomon, know that... Excuse me. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands the intent of the thoughts. And so David tells Solomon that, listen, the same thing kind of that Jesus says. It's not just enough to do the right thing, but you've got to do the right thing with the right motives. Because God doesn't just look at your deeds, but he looks at the motives behind your deeds. And this cuts to the heart. Because there are all sorts of good things that we've probably done with wrong motives. And in God's economy, they count for nothing. If you were in the book of Proverbs, don't turn there. You stay in Matthew. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. But the Lord weighs the motives. And so here you have this idea of worship and obey. All throughout Scripture, you've got to do the right thing with the right heart. And when it comes to murder, there's differing degrees of anger that don't really play out in the English. But when he says everyone who's angry with his brother is guilty. And then if you say you're good for nothing, if you take it the next step and write somebody off, you're good for nothing, then you've gone a step further. And then if you say this, you fool, or some of your translations probably say raka, which is a term that doesn't translate well into English. If, if somebody's already down and you kick them out of anger, then you're in danger of going into the fiery hell. And so, brothers and sisters, if you have any anger in your heart, know that that anger naturally leads towards murder. And as we talked about last week, we need to 
or two weeks ago. If there's any anger or any built-up rage inside of you, we need to deal with these things early on before they get big and out of control. And, and they won't be as big of a problem. Now on to verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And so the Jews would have been very familiar with this idea of presenting an offering before the Lord. There were set times each year where they had to come to the temple and they had to formally present an offering to the Lord. And so Jesus is telling the people, it's not just enough to come and present an offering and be showy. It's not just about the things that you do for show, but it's about your heart. And so if you're coming and you're coming to present an offering before the Lord and you remember, not that you remember, listen to this, not that you have something against someone, but if you know that someone has something against you, don't give your offering, go and make it right. This is tough in our Southern hospitality culture. Why is this tough? Because if you're a good, if you're a good southern citizen, you don't always go to people with problems. You tell other people about the problems and then they kind of go around and solve the problem. And so that means if someone's come to you and said, hey, don't tell anybody that I told you this, but somebody has this problem. If you don't allow them to settle that problem with that person, They are not able to, in good faith, give an offering to God at all because they know their brother has something against them. And so if you have something against someone, go and speak with them and and rid yourself of it and don't have any problems. You see where this is a problem? If there's anything that somebody's told you and said, hey, don't tell them I said it. Well, if I don't tell them you said it, how in the earth am I going to get this thing straight? Is this guilt out of quietness or is this uh, this reverence? I'm not sure. Anyways, loosen up some. And so he says, leave your offering, go make things right with your brother, and then come back and present your offering. This is all about, you shouldn't be giving things to God, showing the world around you that you're at peace with God, when you're not at peace with the brothers and sisters around you. We need to be people who are at peace with those around us. And then in turn, we are also in peace with God. He says, make friends quickly, verse 25. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And so he says, even when you've been wrong and your brother has something against you and he's going to take you to court, make peace with him along the way so that you don't have to go to court. 27. This is when it gets harder and harder. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so it's not just enough not to see the act or not to do the act and be completed of any sort of physical act of adultery. But anybody who's looked at anyone else with lust in their heart has committed adultery. And so it's not just enough to not physically go there, but if you have gone there in your mind, you're guilty of adultery as well. And this is incredibly tough. Murder, okay, 
What's a little murder amongst friends being angry? Everybody's angry, but lust being the equivalent of adultery, this is not popular with our society. Listen to what it says. Listen to how serious Jesus takes this. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And so if it's your eyes that are giving you the problem, tear out your eye for it's better to enter into heaven without an eye than to miss heaven altogether. Now, is Jesus preaching that you should legitimately gouge your eye out if your eyes are causing you to sin? I would say that if your eyes are causing you to sin and you rip your eyes out, you'll still find another way to sin. Okay, but Jesus is saying that you should take sin so seriously that you're willing to go this far to get rid of any sin in your life. That's why I've told you that if you have to have a computer to make a living, but you can't stay off of pornography on a computer, find another way to make a living. Get a job where you don't need a computer because they they do still exist. You could find one. And then he goes on even farther. And he says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, when I was talking about characteristics of a real man, and I'm going to try to be incredibly delicate here. But you're going to need to read between the lines. And I'm going to be delicate because there's little ears around, okay? When I talked to you about the sin of pornography and men stay away from that, real men stay away from that, all of that is lust, okay? All of that, men looking at this sort of thing, women looking at this sort of thing, all of that is lust. And he says it's better for you to go into eternity maimed and stay away from that sort of lust and adultery. Listen, all of that pulls you away from Christ. You cannot serve two masters. This sort of sin, this sort of lust and adultery is addictive to people. And you cannot serve images and adultery and still be a follower of the king. They are not compatible. And so men and women, whatever you need to do to get away from adultery, do it. Get away from it. And get away from it at all cost. If you have to sell your house and move, get away from adultery because it is crippling Christians. And you cannot follow Christ the way that he wants to be followed if this sort of sin is in your life. And so I want to say more about this. But there's, there's too many little ones around. And so Wednesday night, none of you are going to come to Wednesday night now. Uh, I will say a little bit more and push this a little bit farther and let you know some of the more, the bigger problems that result as a, as a result of this. Here we go. Verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits an adultery. And so we're going to exhaust this a little bit more on Wednesday night also. But let me share this with you. When you are working out your theology and what you believe about God, it's dangerous to figure out what you believe about God when you're going through a certain life setting. 
And so if you're thinking about divorce or you've already been divorced, don't let those past experiences or those present experiences jade what God actually says and how he feels about that given thing. And so here he says that you've said, you've heard it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And so that would be that common knowledge says if you're going to divorce your, if you're going to leave your wife, at least give her a certificate of divorce. Well, this was during Moses' day, and what was going on is that the men were sending their wives away, but their wives didn't have any legal standing. They were out by themselves, and so the men, in order to take care of the women and give them a foot up in the world, they had to send them away with a certificate of divorce because that protected the women and gave them certain rights because they were separated from their husband. And Moses goes on to say, he says, the only reason I told you to do this was out of the hardness of your hearts. And so he says, I never intended for you to get divorced in the first place, but out of the hardness of your heart, I told you that if you do get divorced, then give her a certificate of divorce so that she can be well taken care of. And then he goes on to say, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or impurity or adultery, makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so we're going to exhaust this a little bit farther, but I want you to know that Matthew is written to the Jewish audience, and there's some words here that only show up in Matthew, and Matthew is to the Jewish audience. There's a word, pornea, and this here divorces his wife on the grounds of adultery. There's a lot of commentators who think that this means divorces his wife as a result of adultery during the betrothal or engagement period, okay? Because the Jewish people were the ones to practice that. And so... It very well could be taught that the people who are free to divorce their spouses are only able to do it during the betrothal period, just like Joseph was going to do to Mary. Mary was going to, or Joseph was going to put Mary away quietly and he was going to divorce her, even though they weren't married yet. And so this is something that very well could be only for the Jewish period of, uh, of engagement. But listen to what he goes on to say. Everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, how in the world in American culture do you deal with this? It's tough, but listen. When you get married, you make a covenant between a husband and a wife to stay married. And that marriage is supposed to last forever until death do us part. And Paul says in the book of Corinthians that death is the only thing that actually dissolves a marriage. And so Paul's going to give some, some other stipulations, and we're going to talk more about those on Wednesday. But this is what's supposed to happen. Men and women are supposed to get married and stay married forever. That is God's plan. And when one spouse screws up, the other spouse is to be Christ-like and love them through whatever is going on, through thick and thin, through better, for better, and for worse, richer and poorer. And that's how things are supposed to go. And so just because you get a certificate of divorce from the court does not mean at all in God's eyes that you have been separated. Because the scriptures say, what God joins together, let no man take apart. And so in God's eyes, even if you have a certificate of divorce from the court, you are still spiritually united with that person. Now, there are very few exceptions, and we'll talk about the exceptions, but the biggest part of the rule is that Jesus says, you've heard it say that you can send your, your wives away, but I'm telling you, 
don't. Because if you do, you're committing adultery. And so what happens when a woman gets married, and then she gets divorced, and then she gets married to another man? Why is that adultery? Well, in God's economy, that woman is then married to two men. And that is adultery. Okay? Now, Paul is going to go on to say, practically speaking... Practically speaking, what do you do if you've been divorced and now you're married to someone else? Paul is going to say, practically speaking, stay put. Don't go anywhere. And so whatever anybody could ever be thinking, if you have been divorced and now you have been remarried, then trust me, it is God's will that you stay put and you stay in that marriage that you are presently in and you treat it like it's your first one and you stay married to that individual for the rest of your life. Okay? And now, I'm sure that you may have a bunch of other questions compared to this or resulting from this, but Wednesday night, we'll talk about any and all those questions, okay? We'll talk about some of the exceptions that Paul gives. I will tell you that if you're looking to get out of a marriage, you're not going to be encouraged on Wednesday night. But uh, Paul does give some exceptions, and we'll talk about those uh, more in depth. Then he says in verse 33, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. And so he's talking about oaths, and oaths were a big thing for people to take. And he says, listen, you should not have to take an oath for someone to take you seriously. You should be the sort of caliber person whose yes means yes and whose no means no. You should be able to take an you should be able to be taken at your word and not have to swear on anything. And he says, because if you do swear on anything other than your word, it doesn't belong to you anyways. The heavens are not yours to swear by. Jerusalem's not yours to swear by. Even your own head, you can't even make one of your hairs gray or keep them from going gray. So then he goes on to verse 38. And he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give him what he asks. Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And so what do you do as a Christian when someone wrongs you? And he says, you've heard it said that you should give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus is going to say, no, that's not how it works at all. If someone slaps you on the cheek, you turn and give the other cheek to them also. Now, does this mean that if someone legitimately walks up to you and slaps you in the face, that you say, hit me with your best shot over here too? Let's balance this pretty face out so at least both sides of it are swollen and I'm not imbalanced. That's not at all what he's talking about. What he's saying is that if someone is coming at you and someone offends you to the point of being even smacked in the face, what do you do? You don't stand up for your rights and get what's yours. You don't retaliate against them so that you give them the exact same thing they gave you. As Christians, and we talked about this in the Beatitudes, Christians 
lay down their rights and they live their life completely different than the world around us lives their life. And so listen to what he's going to go on to say. He's going to say, don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And so you're not going to be combative back to someone. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And so if someone is hostile against you and they want to sue you, you f- now, listen, all of you business people are going, yeah, this preacher is crazy and he could never operate a successful business because he would let people walk all over him. But we're talking principles here. If somebody wants something that you have, if they think that you have wronged them, then you need to go above and beyond to make it right for the name of Christ. I'm not going to say the Holy Spirit didn't know what was going to happen in our day and age, but this written to its original audience, nobody was suing McDonald's for millions of dollars because they were spilling hot coffee in their lap, okay? This isn't the sort of thing that we're talking about. If someone spills hot coffee in their lap and you get where I'm going with this, give me a head nod. I'm getting no feedback from you guys today, okay? You need, we need to as Christians... Go above and beyond to make things right with people and not live lives retaliating against them. And he's going to go on to say that whoever forces you to go one mile with him, this is verse 41, go with him too. Now, there was a law that said, if you remember, uh, Israel was occupied by Rome during this time. And a Roman soldier could walk up to an, an Israelite or whoever, a Hebrew person, whoever was there, and he could drop all of his armor, his sword, and everything. And by law, that person was obligated to pick it up and walk and carry it for one mile with the Roman soldier. And so the Roman centurion could drop his shield, he could drop his armor, helmet, everything, and he'd say, boy, come with me one mile. And whatever he was doing, the boy had to go with him one mile. And so the Jewish people of the day knew exactly how many steps one mile consisted of because they would walk one mile and then they would drop their stuff and they were off the hook to go with the soldier anymore. And so Jesus says, if somebody forces you to go one mile, go two instead. We are obligated sometimes by law to do something. And so if you're a Jewish person, if you're living in the land and you're forced to go one mile, you have to go that one mile and you should go that one mile with the right heart. But then you should have such a heart that you will go another mile out of the goodness of your heart. And there's a couple things that happen here. He says, what you'll find is that there's joy in going the second mile. There's joy in going above and beyond for the name of Christ. There's a principle if you've ever gone to any survival school. What they teach you in a survival school is that if you're in a, if you're in a prison and you're a prisoner of war and they come to you and they're giving you just enough food to survive, don't eat all of the food. You know, why wouldn't you eat all of the food? Well, you don't eat all of the food because when you don't eat everything they're giving you, you are then in control of what you want. And that helps you out psychologically and it will help you survive more than eating all of the food will. And so by you not eating everything that's given to you, you have the upper hand up here psychologically. And so when you go the extra mile, you may not have a choice to go one mile with somebody, but when you choose to go the second mile, then you're in control and you're doing things the way that you want them done. And so it is always more joyful, not just to do what's required of you, because sometimes we do that grudgingly, but it is so much better for us as Christians when we go above and beyond what is required of us, sometimes even by the law, and do more joyfully. 
because then we are in control of the situation. He keeps going. And then he says, you have heard that it was said. This is verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so he says that we as Christians should be the sort of people who love those people who are our enemies. I'm not saying that any of these things that I've said is easy. And by the way, Jesus said them all, not me. We're merely reading them and commenting on them. But he says that we should be the type of people who love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. And when we do all of these things... That sets you apart from everybody else you know in town. And that makes Christ glorified because none of these things make sense if you are not following Christ. Okay? And it's when we do these things that seem bizarre and they seem strange that there is joy and there's power in our Christian walk. And it is much more enjoyable even though... You think, how in the world could you get joy out of doing good to those who persecute you? It happens. Why? Because God says it happens. And I don't know how it all works, but I know when I love those people in my life who are unlovable and I don't want to love, I get joy and satisfaction and contentment out of that. When I go the extra mile... And don't just do what I have to do, but I go above and beyond. There's joy and satisfaction that comes out of that. And there's a contentment about following Christ that you gain from all of that. Does the world think you're foolish? Absolutely. Every single time. But remember what we said a couple weeks ago? That the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so there is power in all of these things that Jesus is saying, if we will just do them. Then he says in verse 48, and this is the last verse we'll read. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, don't think perfection as in without fault or blemish, but think perfect as in complete. You are being perfected. And so when you do all of these things that Jesus is mapping out, you are being made complete in Christ. And when you will do what the author says to do, there is so much joy and so much satisfaction and contentment in being made complete. And you can't get that anywhere else. And so, brothers and sisters, if you read through the Beatitudes and you read through these and you think, boy, that's nothing but convicting, well, get in line because that's where I am. But the good news is, is that if, if you have any guilt, if you have any shame because maybe you haven't done all of these, the same Jesus who told us to do all of these went to the cross to forgive us of our sins. And so if you have in any way not lived up to these, if you feel like you have failed Christ and you're under any conviction whatsoever, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins. And so all you have to do is ask Christ to forgive you. Now, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, if you've never believed that he died for you on the cross and then he rose from the dead so that you can have eternal life, 
You can have that today. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts, but he's giving us this as our father so that we can have joy and have it completely. And so if you are under conviction, you can find forgiveness in Christ. And if none of this makes sense to you because you've never met Christ, you can meet him today and be forgiven of all of your sins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray now that you would forgive us where we fail you. And Father, I pray that once we recognize our shortcomings, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to be able to abound and to live this life abundantly. Father, I pray that we would be able to joyfully love our enemies. I pray that we would be able to joyfully go the extra mile. God, I pray that we would take joy in loving and treating those well who persecute us. And Father, as the list goes on and on and on, Lord, I pray that we would find boldness in doing your will. And I pray that we would find all of that joy and contentment in doing your will. Father, I thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you offer. And Father, I thank you. I pray that if there's anyone here who's never come into a relationship with you, that today would be the day that they do it. And Father, I pray that all of these things that look foolish on the outside would then become very real to them. And they would realize that in living out the words and commands of Christ, there's true happiness and joy. And so, Father, again, please forgive us where we fail you and help us to walk each day in victory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand for our hymn of invitation. Well, it's good to see you all again this week. I hope that uh, you have a good week. I hope that uh, we're able to uh, pray through how Christ would have us to change things in our life as a result of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's not easy. This is a tough one for us to go through. Um, but um, Matthew gets a little less convicted as we go along, so we'll be in good shape. Amen? And I'm always grateful uh, after you study through a, uh, a sermon like Matthew. I'm always grateful that uh, God is faithful to forgive us where we fail him and that he is most interested uh, in us continually growing as opposed to us being perfect and never screwing up. And so for a guy like me, that's very encouraging because uh, I feel like I screw up from week to week. And so I'm glad that he doesn't just write us off, but that he's interested uh, in us sticking with him throughout the journey. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm going to ask uh, Alan Castillo, would you close us in prayer?